Crispin Mayfield. And this is the Prophetic Imagination Station Podcast. Where we discuss evangelical media from the 80s and 90s to understand how it impacted us and our generation. This season, we're talking about DC Talk's album, Jesus Free. I am so excited to be here this morning with Derek Scott III. Um, we have been friends for a little while now. Um, mm-hmm. He is uh, at the opposite end of the country. I just said good morning and realized that it's afternoon there. You are in uh, Florida. Yeah, I'm in Jacksonville. Correct? Yeah, Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. <laughs> yes. Just double checking because I am so bad at geography. I'm like, I'm pretty sure Jacksonville is in Florida, but it could be in Georgia. That's so. okay, Crispin, because literally every time we've, like, interfaced, I've always been like, you're in Portland? With, like, four <laughs> question marks on the back end. So you're good, right. my friend. You're good. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, we've been connected for a little while, and so I'm so excited to have Derek on to talk a bit about DC Talk. Derek is the creative producer for Studio Wesley, which is a ministry that I just absolutely love. Um, I was just listening this last week to the podcast series that y'all produced called, what, Queer Spirituality? and Queer Roots and Black Spirituality. Yes. And that is like the sort of voices that you're highlighting. And um, so, yeah, I just love what y'all are doing uh, and really glad to have you here. Um, What does your, like, you know, creative producer for Studio Wesley, what does your daily life look like? Yeah, so some of that is... Is there no such thing as a typical day? Yeah, totally. There is no typical day. Every day is different. And partly, Studio Wesley uh, started in a United Methodist campus ministry called Campus City Wesley Foundation. And in the last several months, we're uh, sort of living a more independent life apart from the on the ground campus ministry. We're still connected, but really going in our own direction now. And so right now the day-to-day is figuring out what that means and what we would produce. And, um, you know, right now we're, you know, really focused on content production for college age young adults, Mm. wherever they are, uh, content that is, uh, liberative and inclusive, uh, but also wanting to ask the question, is it possible? And we're not there yet, but can we cultivate community? Can we help develop leaders? Mm-hmm. Can we, um, I'll use this term, uh, make disciples of Jesus Christ uh, via an online platform? And so we're exploring all of that, but we're mm-hmm. still in like super beginning stages of doing a lot of that. So. Yeah. I want to ask about your uh, background with DC Talk in just a minute, but what's your general uh, background? Yeah. So I grew up in a family of church people. We were in church almost every day. Uh, Four days of a week was like a kind of an easier week, but most weeks it was five to six. And we opened the church, closed the church. Sunday school, teachers meeting, uh, prayer meeting, business meetings. Um, 
There's also a, a adult basic education class that my great grandmother ran uh, twice a week. So just all this stuff that we did in our lives kind of centered around the church. It was a Black Baptist congregation. And uh, that was the context that I grew up in, and I loved it. It was it, it was everything for me um, and shaped me. And so um, no one in my family is shocked that, you know, a few decades later, I'm still that guy um, of everything I do is kind of centered around the church. It's a much more institutional um, and, and um, yeah, I have many layers now of what church is for me, but... Um, yeah, I, I grew up in this Black Baptist congregation with my family. And then uh, because of some relationships that I made in high school, uh, end up joining a United Methodist congregation here in Jacksonville. It was a church plant trying to do things differently. Um, and this is, you know, the late 90s into the early 2000s and uh, a very... Uh, uh, attractional model. I'll use that term. But there were some things that kept us from really like being a mega church. That's where like my adult years really were spent. My first years in campus ministry. So I've mm-hmm. I'm, I've been in some kind of ministry related to college age young adults for 21 years now. Um, and nine of those years was spent at this local church. Um, and so that's its own story. So that kind of gives like a, a bit of a background. Um, and I wonder if there's anything like, but like thinking about the past 10 years. So you were at that congregation. Um, what's your, what's your faith journey been like this, the past yeah, 10 years? Yeah. So, um, yeah, but by the time I'm becoming an adult, I'm having a ton of questions about what it means to be a Christian. And I'm, not quite convinced that there's this one way to be a Christian. I don't know what to do with that mm. thought. I don't know how to t- articulate it mm-hmm. in any other way. And so I'm I'm exploring Pentecostalism and I'm exploring Calvinism and eventually I'm going to dabble a little bit into Catholicism and 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 then I'm going to actually be exposed to a, the United Methodist tradition. And, and so I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what to do with all of these streams that seem to work for certain people, but don't work for other people. Um, and also trying to figure out what to do with mine. I'm, uh, at the time, I'm a closeted gay man. I'm a black man in a predominantly white church that, for the most part, are really good to me. And I want to name that, that the people at this congregation were quite mm-hmm. good to me. But I do know that if I would bring up something related to race, it it never ended well. It either I had to concede mm. something, or uh, we usually I conceded because <laughs> I just didn't have the energy <laughs> and the language to really speak into that kind of conversation in that space. Um, there's politics that get wrapped up in there, and this thing in me that says that these mm-hmm. people I'm going to church with and I'm doing life with. They seem to be really successful. They seem to be really, um, they seem to have lots of opportunity and and there seems to be a legacy of, of that too, right? Like that they've got grandparents mm-hmm. and great-grandparents. And, and while I've got like a really strong family legacy of really hardworking individuals who've, who have accomplishments, it just doesn't look like what these white people mm-hmm. have experienced and what their story is. And so I began to think something must be wrong with me, us, and 
So I begin to really lean into and embrace um, what we would call a white evangelicalism in the midst of having lots of struggles with that, but just trying to silence all of that. And that really is where I was uh, for most of my 20s. Mm-hmm. As I was transitioning into my 30s, things began to really shift uh, a great deal. Yeah. And so you're talking about embracing white mm-hmm. evangelicalism. Was that when you made an acquaintance with DC it was. Talk? So um, DC Talk was not a thing in the world that I grew up in. I remember the first time I saw anything about DC Talk, um, it was in a youth choir uh, at this church that I was a part of, this this United Methodist congregation. Um, and I was a vocal major in high school, which is how I got to this church. And so I'm in youth choir, I'm looking at this sheet music, and I'm, I'm you know, listening to uh, the actual DC Talk song. I don't remember the DC Talk song we were actually listening to. I'm, I listened to the actual song and the way that it's been notated in the sheet music. And I'm like, these two things are not the same. Like, this this sheet music is very tame in comparison to what DC Talk was. And that, that was my first experience. And then, you know, at some point, I think I said to somebody, oh, yeah, I don't know anything about DC Talk. And just the shock of... Uh, it's like there's a black guy in DC Talk. Why don't you know about DC Talk? <laughs> all black people in the U.S. don't know each other. That's a joke. They knew that. They knew that not all black people. They knew that. But um, I was given uh, the Supernatural CD uh, when I graduated from college, and I know we're. I know okay. this series is more on Jesus Freak. But Supernatural is really what opened up the world of DC Talk to me. Um, I played that CD in my dorm room my first year of undergrad, which was horrible. I mean, just Derek's worst life (laughs) that first year of undergrad Mm -hmm. on every Mm -hmm. level you can imagine. Um, But I played that Supernatural CD, I mean, just constantly. Um. And in some respects, it did kind of carry me through that season of undergrad. But I can tell you, like, I don't know where that CD is now. Um, and as things would progress, I would, I would, it, I would lose whatever happened to me and whatever comfort it gave me that first year of undergrad. That was no, it, it could not fight all of the stuff that I was wrestling with and finding myself, finding my place in the church and figuring out what I believed in comparison um, or alongside what other folks believed. So that, that for me was kind of the entrance into DC talk. And then obviously it comes up along the way as a cultural and Mm -hmm. culturally Christian phenomenon going forward. But that was my kind of my introduction there. We would do these special worship nights where we would do, you know, less worshipy songs, less Hillsong uh, kind of tunes, and and use mm-hmm. these songs that, like everybody might really jam to. And DC Talk usually was on the list. Some DC Talk songs. So yes, we end up doing Jesus Freak and um, In the Light. What we used to for the Halloween season. Of course, we wouldn't do a Halloween party. And so in the college ministry that I led, we had this. Uh, tradition we would do a black light party um 
where the band wouldn't do worship. We do these really cool songs. And this one of the songs we always sang was In the Light because of the Black Light Party. Like, so they, I have these connections and stuff, but they always like get inserted in part because me as a worship leader, and that's where I was at the time, as far, and also as a ministry leader, it just wasn't in me to just bring them to the table like naturally. Somebody else always had to be like, we need to sing this song. Um, like Colored People came up once and... I think I, I ended up being out of town and so I couldn't sing it at church and I wasn't upset about it. <laughs> I mean, these, these songs did definitely come up. And so I have these interactions, but they're not like deeply tied to my journey. And so it's, but it's, it's so therefore it's interesting because mm. they always came up mm -hmm. in these, in these spaces. Yeah. Right. Well, I love that. Cause it's, you've been in white evangelicalism. So you can like, you have a little bit of distance from these songs, but we can talk about what what the heck do we think was going on during yeah, that time? Yeah, right. And so today we're going to talk about uh, what mm -hmm. if I stumble, and I think a lot of folks um, think about that as a song about grace, like you know, what if I sin, what if I stumble. But if you actually dig into the lyrics, it's a lot about like my witness mm -hmm. to the world. Mm -hmm. Right. And it starts off with that quote from Brennan Manning. If you all didn't know, that's the person that says mm -hmm. that at the beginning. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. So there's this idea of like, we're saying one thing and we're doing another. And that's what the world finds unbelievable. Um, I, I wonder, what do you think the, the <laughs> unbelieving world finds unbelievable? Do you think that's true or? All due respect to Brennan. I want to know what his definition of atheist is. I want to know what his definition mm. of the world is. Uh, the unbelieving world. Because my experience of evangelicalism is simplistic and innocent and it's it's a it's a way of seeing the world that doesn't do well with complexity and so often when i heard those words i want to know what they mean by that there isn't this like one type of there's this one type of agnostic, there's this one type of spiritual, not religious. And that gets really hard for the worldview of evangelicalism. So, I, like, right off the top, and I listened to this song a bunch of times, <laughs> and it was every time I was like, yeah. bro, are you sure they're even paying attention to us? Like, like I don't know if they know who we are. Like, they don't care. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so, like, the first mm -hmm. thing for me in this question about the unbelieving world is this assumption mm -hmm. that we know who they are and they know who we are. That we mm -hmm. And we usually, we Christians, we American Christians, usually walk into the room assuming we know everything about all the people in the room. That we know what their pains are, mm -hmm. what their needs are, and what is the thing God wants to say to them. And I'm like, I... No. <laughs> no, we don't. So uh -huh. totally takes us off in a different way. But it, that's where I start. Like, I don't know if we actually know who mm -hmm. we're talking about. Um, but then mm -hmm. I, I, as I was listening to the song, 
you know, I did get this sense of like one of the DC talk guys, like on stage doing their thing. And I might've actually been in the video and I might've seen the video like ages ago and just don't remember. So if I'm taking something from the video, all, all credit and, you know, uh, due respect, but I got this sense of like this, like, um, one of the DC talk guys on stage, like wrestling with some stuff that, you know, probably mm. looked at some website before the concert or, um, you know, he and his girlfriend <laughs> had a moment before they left for tour and she <laughs> called and said, call me right before the concert. He's like, what? You know, it's been a, it's been a few weeks, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> And so he's like, has all this inside of him and is looking out at this audience of youth because you took the youth group to the DC mm. Talk concert, right? And he's like, mm-hmm. do they see it? And like, do you, do they see that I'm not actually a perfect, perfect Christian? Yes. That's usually what the, what the first sort of line of things were, right? Like the first, um, conversation about holiness. And I, you know, just, Going back to again, like these ideas uh, that that Brennan Manning quote, and like the un- what the unbelieving world finds unbelievable, this thought that it's because mm-hmm. yeah, again, you know what Brennan says, like we profess Jesus with our mouths, but our lives say something different. I agree with him, but I just don't think it's what. It, maybe Brennan thought this too, but I don't think it's what we're all taking from it. Like my experience with okay, so back up. I spend a ton of time yeah. in the craft beer scene here in Jacksonville because I've been working at a craft brewery for nine years, um, pouring beer part-time. And so mm. I spend a lot of time, some of my closest people are people that I sit down and drink craft beer with. And so the things that my friends find unbelievable about Christians is that we talk about a God of love and then are really good at not loving people. Mm-hmm. Like, we've just mastered this ability mm-hmm. to be really harmful to people, by and large. And that's not just the evangelical piece of it, from Catholic priests abusing young young children to the cover-up of those you know, malicious crimes, to the way that the mainline has just been this white, good old boy organization that has propped up a certain type, certain types of governments over the years, like across the board, um, we, we, we the church has been harmful. And so, my non-Christian friends, my non-believing friends, my friends who are outside of the church, whatever word we want to put there, the thing they find unbelievable is that we talk about a God of love, and we're so mm-hmm. bad at loving people. That's mm-hmm. the part they find unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if, particularly, the evangelical perspective can fully take that in because then it requires the evangelical world to question its own innocence and it requires the evangelical world to recognize that the world might be more complex than they're willing to acknowledge. And I think that when this came out in 95, you know, they talk about, you know, will I make fools of us all? Christians had been made fools by these televangelists that had like fallen, right? So these were like nationally known Christian mm-hmm. leaders that said one thing and did another. But I I think when you're talking about Christians being good at harming people, it's not like, oh, I meant to do this and I did this instead. It's like, 
No, actually, the thing that I intended to do that I say that my theology allows me to do is the thing that is harmful. It's not like a double-mindedness. It is like, or a deceptiveness. It's like, no, actually, like, this is what I think is right, and this is what I'm going to do, and it ends up harming people. And it's that inability to recognize that there is a lot of distance between intent and impact, and that... Mm we are still responsible for impact, even if the intent was very different. Um, I think that's some of why, you know, we saw these televangelists fall in the 90s. And instead of thinking about the distance between intent and impact, we just said, I'll just go in and do that better. My intent's going to be better. My intent's mm-hmm. going to be more integrous. My intent's going to be more supported, more more grounded in scripture, more focused on the gospel. Right. Like it's always sort of like there's nothing wrong with our intent. We are innocent. We are. We, it's not us. Like, and I guess I have a lot of thoughts, more thoughts on this than I really realized I did. But I, I, I get, I still get hung up at just how hard it is. When I think about the um, SBC scandal. And just how long it took their denomination to just own up Hmm. that there were pastors in their ranks that were committing sin. And how quickly it's always, they're, they're able to sort of point it out outside mm-hmm. of their ranks. Like, but when it's there, it's like, no, it couldn't be, it couldn't be, it could not be us. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be, but it was. But again, it, I think that it requires them. And I think this is where you start talking about like holiness, like, Holiness for a lot of people is, is I think, a hard concept uh, to wrestle with because they would have to wrestle with their own humanity, the, the ways in which, not only the ways in which we live life as if God did not exist, act as if God had nothing to say, but even the ways that our lives just don't line up with the narrative that we've been given. There is this tension in the song, like, will I be holy in order to mm-hmm. to show others Jesus, or will I compromise, right? Um, and it's this very, uh, like, purity-focused, like, piety. This was sort of what I grew up hearing in church. If you don't cheat on your wife, if you're honest, if you're a hard worker, if you keep your lawn looking nice, then people will be like, oh, like, God must be real because this is a Christian and um, I think that really is so different than the conversations that I'm that I continually run into now. How Christians are treating immigrants, or how Christians are treating queer people, or what I, like these things where actually it's like it's, mm-hmm. it has nothing to do with your personal piety, and it's actually your theology that is rotten. I- I, I think that there's something about the theology, obviously, and there's something about this assumption that everybody needs the same things. That there is this one mm. narrative that everybody... So everybody needs to live in a house with a mom and a dad, some kids, a nice manicured lawn. We go to church on Sundays and we go to soccer, you know, and, and like this... But that, A, can't be everybody's life. Like, it can't be everybody's life. And mm-hmm. this inability to just acknowledge that maybe um, my, God's best for me as a Black gay man is to live as a Black gay man. 
a proud black man mm-hmm. who's out and figuring out what it means to live in this world as a queer person. Maybe that is God's best for me, but you know, that that's harder, right? Like that's more than one script. Mm-hmm. It's more than one image. And this is where, yeah, mm-hmm. like the, the, the script of white evangelicalism just embeds itself in, in their evangelicalism, in their mission and in their, what they're hoping to witness. They're witnessing mm-hmm. to a very specific picture. Um, so I wonder for you, when I think about this, this idea of like what a, you know, Brennan Manning's quote is kind of getting at this idea of like, we're this light, we're this repre- representation of Jesus. And um, if people could really see that without us messing it up, then people would be drawn to belief. And I wonder, looking at Gen Z, what is it that they, like, what are they seeing in the church? And is it drawing them or not? And why or why not? I think that Gen Z is seeing a church, one, that cares more about itself than the rest of the world. Cares more about its own institutions, uh, keeping its own lights on and things like And these are things, these are mm. important. So don't, um, yeah. It's just the prioritization of it. So that that's one thing they see. And they see people that they can't be honest with. Hmm. Like they can't they can't tell their truth. The moment that you even say that term, there's somebody that hears it as like, well, Jesus is truth. The, the scriptures are truth. Like mm-hmm. this is what I'm saying. Like this need for mm-hmm. us to be right, this need for us to always have the the um the moral high ground in a conversation that's just not how connection works we have mm-hmm. we have been so focused on being right that's where this song and and the, that court what if i stumble like who cares if you stumble the church actually cares more that you if you stumble than the world outside the church and so I, I know in many in in many cases at least in my context um, mm-hmm. Gen Z looks at a church that, uh, that is more concerned about itself. It looks at the church and sees it more concerned about its own existence and is not concerned about what the rest of the world needs and is not interested in actually having authentic, which is just another way of saying honest, mm-hmm. authentic relationships with people to see where that goes. So one more point about this. I'll be your friend with the intent of you coming to Jesus at some point. Yeah, it's really interesting um, to think about the message of the song is don't compromise. Mm. And um, and what what happens when you don't compromise? <laughs> what And what happens to your faith witness when you don't compromise? If you're like... I don't want to learn about critical race theory. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. like that's compromising or like I'm going to hold this like, you know, l- biblical literalist like view of the Bible. Yeah. Right. Like that actually it's 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 painfully paradoxical that the message of the song is like, don't compromise, you know, stay the path. And actually it seems like the people that we see like stay the path quote unquote in that path of white evangelicalism 
actually that's what really interrupts their witness. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't want to like put you on the spot, but when we first started talking about this, you were reflecting on the the people in the communities that were really into this album and where they're yeah. at now. Yeah. Well, and again, some of it, you know, when you step out of the narrative, when you say, I, 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 I'm actually not like all of these people, it, it does get this reaction, particularly with white evangelicals, because either... Either then mm-hmm. that white evangelical listening to you has to say, gosh, and I guess that means I have to acknowledge that my kid is queer and I, I can't mm-hmm. create an environment that silences that part of them. Or I got to get this other person out of here. I got to excommunicate this other person because it's going to disrupt this narrative they were trying to hold on to. And I think that's what the compromise thing does. The compromise thing mm-hmm. creates this moment that forces particularly white evangelicals, to question their own innocence and simplicity. And, and, and they've got to decide what to do. Am I going to really let myself be questioned? Let my life be questioned? Oh, gosh, I don't, I don't want to be seen as a compromiser. Um, so I don't know if I can go. I don't have the energy. I don't have the strength. And this is good over here. So we're just going to stop talking to that family. We're going to stop hanging out with that family. We're going to this pastor's talking about mm-hmm. anti-racism, and if we really lean into anti-racism, then I got to talk about my racist grandmother and the ways that she used to mm-hmm. talk about people, and you know, like all of this stuff that they're just not. It's, right. it's a, and it's a, it's a, it's hard to to have your own innocence questioned externally. It is difficult. You know this from your work. It is difficult for someone to have to come face to face with the fact that their own innocence is not real. And so I think about the folks that I used to go to church with. Um, most of them have doubled down. God loved them when I came out two and a half years ago. Uh, it, almost, it, it almost happened overnight, the change in our relationship. Mm. But I got it. Mm. If they, and some of them have, had, have done this in, in private, right? If, if they truly believe that I can be an out gay man and still be deeply in love with Jesus and effective in my witness, it challenges some of their own choices and viewpoints, and that could disrupt the whole thing. Easier, and there's a scripture that sounds like this, easier to let one person get excommunicated than for the whole nation to have to do this deeper work. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's changing from like, if we change the title of this song from what if I stumble, it's like, what if I've been stumbling all along Mm -hmm. and how difficult that is to look at? Yes. And the truth is we all do. Mm -hmm. To me, one of the biggest shifts for my theology really came at this point when I um, particularly looked at the Genesis creation narratives, where what I actually saw was a desire on the part of God to be in relationship with Adam and Eve, not to even expose them to the right and the wrong, 
That's the, mm-hmm. and because I feel like the right and the wrong is where relationships break down. Mm-hmm. But it's the connection. It, it's the walking with God in the cool of the day. That for me became really core. And I just realized that most of my evangelical friends are more concerned with being right than with being, than being in relationship. They'll be in relationship as long as they feel like they're right and you're right. But the moment that they're not sure of your your rightness or your posture challenges their rightness, the, the, the relationship falls apart. And, and I mourn that. Again, it's why I don't have a relationship with most of the folks I used to go to church with. Um, but I, I, I also mourn that for them, that we can't just be friends on a journey together. Um, and so I hear that song, what if I stumble? And the thing that seems to be at stake for the writer, the thing that's at stake is their relationships. The relationships, yes, that came along because they were on a platform or they had a message Mm -hmm. or people were coming to them. But if I stumble... If I'm found to be a compromiser, ultimately, I lose all of these people that I love. Which is counter to this one line that actually doesn't fit in the song. Jesus' love never goes away. It's something I forgot what the actual line was. Like, right, but yeah. it's like, Jesus' love never goes away. And yet, we know that if you stumble, the church's love goes away. If you compromise, the church's mm-hmm. love goes away. So that's just mm-hmm. right there is our example of why that way of of doing doing church living out faith that witness does not match the witness of Jesus the way of Jesus because in the church if you stumble the church's love goes away that is the testimony of everybody whose story did not match the primary narrative that they were being given it reminds you of that that children's song, be careful little eyes what you see, for the father up above is looking down in love, so be careful little eyes what you see. It's sort of this, like, threat, and then it's like, but God loves you, but, like, you got to be really careful, and you got to walk a careful line, and it's this, like, dual, like you said, there's this standard, mm-hmm. right, like, and the pressure, and you can feel the pressure in the song, and there is talk about grace, and the grace is... The grace talk is not enough to overcome the pressure. Because the grace part is not the primary, the, the primary idea. The grace part is this afterthought, mm-hmm. this this sort of footnote and mere detail. Mm-hmm. The the real mm-hmm. the real story is: we need you to not stumble. We need you to not question. Mm-hmm. We need you to not adopt another worldview. We need you to because if you don't, all of these people are going to suffer because of that. And again, it's this pressure to not tell the truth about your own life. Even if you, mm-hmm. I would say that even if you still buy into the narrative that everybody needs the same thing, mm-hmm. that everybody's lives look the same, this inability to tell the truth about our own lives and to know that when we do that, we'll still be embraced and, and brought close, that, that inability really has broken the church's ability that mentality has broken the church's ability to really draw in people who are quote-unquote atheists, quote-unquote non-believing, unchurched, because mm-hmm. there is no example that says 
In fact, the only examples we've got is if you do stumble, then get up in front of the church and do this public repentance, mm-hmm. which then leads mm-hmm. to shame. And there's just very few people who are like, yes, please let me add more shame <laughs> to my bucket. But, you know, like, oh, man. Um, yeah. But again, I, 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 a part of me is using so many words because I mourn this. I mourn this because I I know that if we could let go of this need, one, to protect our own innocence, two, to be able to live in a more complex world where there isn't one story, there isn't everybody needs the same thing. Gosh, I think that we would actually be in relationship with people and we would find the work of witness and mission and and evangelism to be so life-giving that everybody would be wanting to do it. I mean, Mm. I wish that evangelism and witness was was the way that we deepened friendships with people outside of our circles. Only God can save. Yes, we can tell our story about the way God has saved us, but only God can. And so, evangelism, witness, mission. And so, yeah, then you're not worried about, mm-hmm. because this is where, again, back to the brewery, there might have been one or two times that I had one too many. There might one or two, one or two times. Mm-hmm. And that was just because I didn't eat, y'all. I wasn't paying attention to my water intake. <laughs> hey, I'm not reporting you to anyone. Thank you. But uh, you know why I drank too much? Because I was having the best conversation with some friends and I was not going to get up. And yes, there was a thought in the back of my mind what if some Christian saw me and was like, Derek, I saw that you had more than two drinks. And then I'd be like, you're right. And the ABV on those drinks were really high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's exactly it. It's like, the, that's kind of the message of the song. It's like, I got to keep up this image if I'm going to, if I'm going to show Jesus to the mm-hmm. world. And first of all, it just doesn't work for authentic relationships and secondly, like you said, like people aren't paying that much attention. I mean, I th- I think they I think the the unbelieving world, to use Manning's uh, uh, term, is they care about like, are you trying to use political power to be able to discriminate against queer folks? Like, are you like, are you caring for the earth, or are you like on the front lines of like trashing the environment? Yeah. Like, I think those are like those are the conversations that come up with me. Like when I mention that I'm a Christian, like I have to give like a lot of caveats. And I think something that is, I'll just be honest and say like something uh, that I've realized about white evangelicalism is the things that are unique about white evangelicalism are oppressive in nature. Mm. Mm. <laughs> like, the like caring for the poor, which the, you know they say like oh we need to care for the poor to like show that you know to show God's love and I'm like I actually know a lot of people that are not Christians that are doing a better job at this, mm-hmm. um, but what's unique about you is um, is things like trying to keep your tax exempt status while being able to discriminate uh, against queer people or. Um, your uh, particular politics on immigration, right? Like that is like, that's not, that's unique about you and not in a good way, or right? Even like, even a desire to take care of the poor, just not in my backyard. Mm-hmm. And, and, and mm-hmm. I, 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 
again, I think some of it is the, um, and all of this is reductionist, right? But I, I, I hear your point about the uniqueness of white evangelicalism are the places and the moments that they are most oppressive. I think it's in part because white evangelicalism can barely name that they could be oppressive. It would name that historically Catholicism has been oppressive. It would name that certain political structures are oppressive. But can white evangelicalism actually name out loud clearly we we can do we can too. We have been. Here are the groups we've harmed historically. Here are the groups we're still harming. And, I, and for me, it's this. Because if I have to actually acknowledge that we are an oppressive system, that we have oppressive tendencies, that the impact of our witness has been oppressive to very specific people, we have to challenge the simplicity that we're good. We're good. And that's why everybody should be like us. Because <laughs> we're good. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also it's protective. It, it, if, I, if I acknowledge... If, again, if we acknowledge that we are not all good, then what do we do with that? And I just want so much more for the American church. So much more. I really love the church. Um, the church mm. is what shaped me, and the church has given me a direct path to the holy that I call Jesus. And that has, it has saved me, you know, in some respects from myself, but from my own self-rejection. Um, and I, I have been given such a beautiful gift, both in what the church has given me and what the church allows me to do. I want to give that to other people. But I realize that until the church is willing to be honest about itself, individually and collectively, We'll never, we're just never, we're never going to get there. We're never going to be seen as the kind of institution, the kind of space, the kind of people that the world can look to and know that they are loved. Mm. And if our desire is to continue to be seen as right and infallible, it, it doesn't matter if we, if we stumble. It doesn't matter um no no one as long as we are the way we continue to be people are not going to see us as a place where they can receive love and forgiveness and restoration yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense to me so the last question mm-hmm. what What's it like to be right here? What's it like for you to be right here where you can see with clear eyes about the, just the oppressive, traumatic, violent legacy of the church in in the U S and also it's part of your daily life and it is something that you love. Where do you go from there? <laughs> um, 
I seek to live as honestly as I can in front of people. I'm not interested in debating. I'm not interested in arguing. I'm deeply interested in listening. I'm so interested in holding space. But I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm not here to, to, to be, uh, I'm not trying to tear the thing down. I just want the thing to be better. I know that it can, and I get to live in spaces where it is getting better. With that said, I have to be honest, because that's what you do. It's hard for me to hold space for people who have hurt me. Mm. And I want to get better at that. I want to get better at holding space. Not, not so they can hurt me again. No, no, no we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. But I know that most of the people that have hurt me, there's like two that I can't say this about, but most of the people that have hurt me didn't mean to. So let's be better. <laughs> but we can't, you know, it's hard, it, part of it's because we can't actually even talk about being better without talking about the ways that we did the harm, right? So I'm trying to be a person who can hold space for individuals who hold white evangelical perspectives on the world. And I'm still on my journey with that. But I'm going to continue to live as honestly as I can in the world because I do think that that is the way that we create relationships. And I do think that the work of mission and evangelism and witness is all about friendship. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, and I want to be friends with as many people as possible. And they might be like, yeah. Derek's perspective on faith is interesting. Let me get some more in there. But ultimately... Trying to live as honestly in front of the world as I can. You said something a minute ago that I'm just dragging out this last question, but <laughs> you said something really important, which was um, naming things. And I think that um, I think I think this goes. It's worth mentioning, and I think that this this is what a lot of people that focus on truth and reconciliation mm-hmm. do is like there there like how can you hold the humanity and dignity of people that have harmed you mm-hmm. but part of that being a healthy process is being able to name the systems yeah. it doesn't mean if i'm understanding you right it doesn't mean going back into that like oh yeah i'm i i'm going to take on your um i'm going to take on the system again or i'm going to i'm going to stay in the system it's it's like, no, I'm going to name things as they are. And then individuals that have been a part of these systems, I'm going to hold space for them. Absolutely. Just so appreciate you showing up and me asking you these <laughs> difficult questions. And I just really appreciate getting to hear your heart in this and um, and where you're at and 
because we just, yeah, we need so many different people. Danielle and I always talk about we just need to burn it down. Um, so <laughs> I'm, I'm it glad depends that on the day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. But thank you so much. Um, is there anything uh, that you want to plug before we finish? Um, um, you know, I always love Studio Wesley's work, but. Yeah, and we're we're yeah. in a, a new season for Studio Wesley, so be paying attention to the stuff we're producing. Um, you can follow us, um, put in Studio Wesley, and you'll probably come up with it. Um, there's some weird handles out there that I don't know by heart because I'm a 42-year-old late exer um, asking too much of me culture. <laughs> um, but uh, there's uh, we're, we're essentially just trying to serve college-age young adults wherever they are and some of the content that we're producing related to mental health and wellness at the intersection of faith, I think folks will find helpful. You've really uh, informed a lot of that work, Crispin, and we're grateful to you. Um, and yeah, um, I, I love the church. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I, 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 I'll, I'll point people to the United Methodist Church. We're going through all kinds of drama right now, though. So um, give us some give us some time to get our ish together. <laughs> but yeah, Studio Wesley. Oh my yeah. gosh, yeah, you are. Well, I just want to. I just want to say you're. I know that you are. Like there are changes that are happening, and that change does not happen without the blood, sweat, and tears of the people that are in on all the committees and the meetings and all those things, uh, while still showing up with your own experience and your own like aspects of your identity. Right? Mm -hmm. These are so I'm getting off on a tangent, but like. You know, it's communities and meetings, but it's also communities and meetings about things that are so personal. So I just want to give you so much credit for doing that important work. Um, it's an honor. In, it's in an honor. Denomination. So, yeah. All right. Thanks so much, thanks, Eric. brother. So good to be with you. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1.50 a month and join our community with extra episodes and a Facebook group to talk about Jesus Freak, religious trauma, and growing up evangelical. You can find us online at propheticimaginationstation.com as well as Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening.